Like it's good to see you guys all here. Uh, again, glad to, glad to open up God's Word together. Uh, glad to spend this, uh, this time together as we, uh, wherever, whatever brought you here this morning, know that you are here for a reason, that you are cared for, prayed for, and appreciated before and loved before you even come into these doors. And so I hope you know uh, that God loves you, that he has a plan for you, that even no matter how far gone we may feel, he's with you, and he can redeem even the worst of sinners, which we'll learn about later on today. Now, I want to take another moment just to celebrate and to thank each and every one of you that had a hand in putting together our Celebration Sunday last Sunday. Can we give a round of applause for everybody that there were... There are people that were here Saturday afternoon, people that were here earlier Sunday, uh, people that were helping out in between, people that were doing things that weren't able to come and, and did things from home and brought stuff. I mean, thank you all so much. What a, what a powerful day uh, to honor the past of our past 50 years, but also to celebrate and to be faithful to what God is calling us to in the future and acknowledging that we've had a church of 50 years strong that is helping people to get plugged into the people and purpose of the church that are constantly being changed by God in order to make a change in this world and who are called to be witnesses to help bring those far from God near to God. And that is a church that I'm excited to be a part of and excited to continue to see how God will use us in the future. So thank you all for being a part of that celebration last week. Now, as we uh, transition to this week, in our previous series, the We Are the Church series, we've taken the first four chapters of Acts, and we started to talk through some of the different aspects of what it meant to be the church and how we as a church have been, are doing, and will continue to do those things. But this week, we decided that we're going to keep going through the book of Acts. And so we're not going to just stay for the first four chapters, but we're going to look at some of the stories, some of the people of the book of Acts, some that are really positive and exciting, some that are a little bit more conflict-ridden and difficult, and knowing that out of all these different types of stories, we can learn great things, and God has great things that may be tough for us to hear, but they're good for us to hear, and it's for the betterment of our relationship with him. And so what I'm going to ask is that we would... uh, Open up in a word of prayer as we dive into God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for this opportunity to dive into your word this morning, God. Lord, we pray that as this is a a passage that can be a little difficult, a, a topic that can be difficult, Lord, we thank you that you are big enough to handle all of our difficulties and all the things that are tough for us, and that you are big enough and good enough to walk us through those things. So Lord, I pray that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a powerful, personal, and and clear way to each and every one of us that is in this room or that is listening online, and God, may you be glorified by how you work in us and through us to help us become the men, women, that you've called us to become. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as I mentioned, we are going to be going through the book of Acts, and we're going to specifically start today. Uh, We talk about all the goodness that happened in Acts 4, and we'll we'll dive into that, but we're going to start today with Acts chapter 5. So you can start turning there, but as you are doing that, uh, my wife recently, uh, earlier this week, was driving down the road, and as she was driving, she, she heard a noise, and all of a sudden she looked down, and her windshield had gotten a chip in it. Have you ever had this moment before where you look and you think, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Because there's this chip in the windshield, and it's one of those that we know. The second that that happens, 
that if we're not careful, a chip in our windshield is going to become like a crack. It's going to go across the windshield that goes from when we had money to when we don't have money, when we have to pay for it. So it's like this little journey that goes here. And, and we recognize that it's automatically something where we say, oh my gosh, we got to figure out how to fix this. Now, we had, we had someone tell us, and this is just uh, food for thought for you all, that if this happens to you, what you can do is get uh, a piece of clear packing tape and you put it right across the top and it helps the splintering from, um, to not continue until you go and, and see a professional. But guys, that's free for food for thought today. So I'm glad you guys came for that. No, but it's one of those where you can put that over but we had this moment where once it happens, we look, and this was, like a, this was like a deep chip. It wasn't like just a little small one. And automatically, okay, well, we're going to have to get this fixed. And so I got it fixed, and he said, good job on putting the tape. Um, and they ended up, you know, it didn't cost too much, but it became this thing where it was this little chip in the windshield that, if not taken care of, can become this huge crack. Now, I had this when I was growing up, when I was younger, and I had my first car, and this was when I was not responsible. And so I, would, I was driving and a chip came into the window. And yeah, it came from all the way in the bottom corner here and it just kind of went around and it just kept going and it just kept splintering and got worse and got worse. And it's amazing how what one small thing can have big consequences. It's amazing how one small thing that just seems like a little chip in our windshield can end up growing. Now for us, we may not be talking about a windshield now. Now we're thinking about our own lives and recognizing that there are things that you and I will do, that there are quote-unquote smaller sins that we may not think are big deals, that we think, that, oh, I've not murdered somebody, or no, I've not committed adultery with somebody, or no, I've not done this, this crazy thing. So we think, well, then we're, we're okay, because we're only committing smaller sins. And so maybe for some of us, this small sin might look like uh, being in class, and instead of doing your own homework, you, you borrow and help study from somebody, and really just means that you're cheating. Maybe for some of us, it's this idea of going and making our numbers look better in front of our bosses so that we can maybe get that promotion or, or maybe get uh, higher up in the, in the company, but we have to fudge the numbers a little bit in order to do so. Maybe for some of us, it's the idea of recognizing that we make a, a small little white lie to a client in order to make a sale. And, and, you know, they're going to figure it out eventually. It's not a big deal. It's just this small little white lie. And we think that, oh, it's not a big deal. And, and maybe for some of us, it's the fact that we don't fully stop at a right turn red light because, you know, it's just more like Pirate's Code. It's a set of guidelines. Um, but it's not true, right? We recognize that there might be these little things in our lives that could be these little chips away in our lives and these small chips that may just seem like they're in our windshield can become, if we are not careful, cracks within our character. And they can track, trace the path not so much of when we had money to when we didn't, but when we had integrity to which now we don't. Because of these small steps. And it's often these small decisions that you and I make every single day to either follow the Lord or maybe not even that we're disobeying the Lord fully, but we're taking a small step away from full obedience. And then once we continue just each day making one small step away from full obedience, all of a sudden you walked out that life down for three decades and you're much, much further away from the Lord than you ever intended. Because sometimes these small chips can create large cuts in our character, large cracks in our character. So this morning, uh, as we start off in this Acts chapter 5, and we look at Ananias and Sapphira, our main point is this idea that there is no sin so small that is beyond God's justice. 
But there's no sin so big that's beyond God's grace. There's no sin so small that's beyond God's justice. It's not like these smaller sins are okay with God, but we only focus on the big ones. It's that there's no sin so small that's beyond God's justice, but there's also no sin so big that's beyond his grace and mercy. And so as we go further down in your notes, this idea of these small sins with big consequences is one of your notes there. And as you are filling that in, I also want to ask you to, again, turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Um, if you are using the church Bible, it's page 1697, 1697. Uh, but if you have your own Bible or the Bible app, that's awesome. Uh, we'll be in Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But before we jump into that passage, we're going to hit on a little bit of the context before. And so the small sins with big consequences, the first one we're going to talk about is the sin of pride. The sin of pride is the one that you're writing down in your notes there. The sin of pride. And that background starts from Acts 4, 36 and 37. That in this section, in verses 32 through 35, we see the believers coming together. They're selling their property. They're laying it down at the apostles' feet. That, that no one had a need inside the church. And it's this beautiful picture of church community coming together. And it's this beautiful picture of what the church can and should be. However, we see that in verse 36 and 37, one man gets encouraged above the others, and his name is uh, specifically apt to that idea of encouragement. It says, verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And so he was this great example in the church, and he has a leadership role throughout the book of Acts we'll look at later. But he brings the money and lays it at the apostles' feet. And in that moment, he's saying, I'm giving everything I can. And so we begin in verse, uh, five, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, looking at the comparison of that man, Barnabas, to what Ananias and Sapphira are concocting together. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. That's awesome. That's great. That's what the church was doing. With his wise full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. It's this idea that he said that he sold it for a certain price, and that price was everything that he gave, but he held back and kept some of it for himself because he wanted to have this appearance of being extra spiritual or being just like Barnabas. And he had this idea that he wanted to have this pride in his reputation rather than actually working and praying for God to help him with his character. And so he laid it at the apostles' feet with the same verbiage that Barnabas did in Acts 4, 36 and 37 is the same verbiage that we see here in uh, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that he laid it at the apostles' feet. But we see here that it wasn't something that he really wanted. He, he didn't give that up because he wanted to really be a part of the church giving, saying, I'm giving everything. He, if we're honest, like us, say that we want to give everything to God. And, and maybe we truly intend to, but whether intentionally like Ananias and Sapphira or unintentionally because of our fear of our sin, we end up saying, God, I give you everything. But in reality, there's these sins, these struggles, these temptations. We hide in the back recesses of our minds and hopes that they're just small sins and that they won't have any consequences. It's that struggle that you're too afraid to tell somebody about. It's that temptation that you seem to fall into time and time and time again. 
It's that moment of brokenness and that wound that you haven't even shared how hurt you are because of things in your past. And so then you're just stumbling over and over. But, but we hide it behind. We say, God, I'm giving you everything. And we raise our hands and we sing our songs. But in the recesses of our hearts, we know the truth, that there are skeletons in our closet that we dare not show anyone because if we did, maybe we wouldn't be as lovable as we thought. Maybe people wouldn't think as highly of us as we thought. And maybe our pride would take a hit. We hear from Warren Wearsby. He says this about pride. He said, pride opens the door to every other sin. For once we are more concerned with our reputation than our character, there is no end to the things we will do just to make ourselves look good before others. That we recognize that if we're concerned about our pride and our reputation rather than our character, because our character is who you are when no one's watching. Your character are the, the small decisions you make every single day to either pursue God and live for God or, or maybe just go a little bit off kilter, but then you extend that up to three decades and your life is vastly different than you ever would have imagined. So we talk about the sin of pride, that they wanted to look good like Barnabas. The next sin that we talk about is the sin of lying. The sin of lying. Now I'm going to read uh, verse 3. And then we're going to go all the way through verse 10. So stay with me as we read this together. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. We recognize in verses 3 and 4, this is one of the times where, in the, in, the, in the book of Acts, it's one of the first times that we see the Holy Spirit being on the same level of God, that he's saying you lied to the Holy Spirit, and also you lied to God, putting on that same triune uh, trinity as well as with Jesus. So it's, it's validating the deity of the Holy Spirit. But it's recognizing the thing that the sin in and of itself was not that they gave money to people, and they... It's not just that they sold the property because that's what people were doing. That was a good thing. The sin was that they lied about how much they gave and by how much they really earned. They show that it was the fact that they were able to maybe lie to people, but we, you, I, we cannot lie to God because he knows the inner recesses. He knows those skeletons in the closet. He knows those things that we try to hide. And so we can either confess them and be open and try to improve our character, or we could be so focused on shielding our reputation that we just let them rot and let them waste away and ultimately become this crack within our character. We see Warren Wearsby continues on. He clarifies this for us just to make sure that it's not God just being a bully and saying, oh, you owe me money. It's this. He said, we must keep in mind that their sin was not in robbing God of money but in lying to him and robbing him of glory. Because they thought that holding on to the money would provide them power, provide them safety, provide them the glory of, oh, you are so great, Ananias and Sapphira, rather than saying, God is so great because we entrust him with everything. They were lying not just to people, but to God. We continue on. Oh, sorry, one more thing. Oliver Wendell Holmes, he has a quotation about lying. As well, he says, sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle which fits them off. That no matter what sin you or I commit, 
Isn't it true that it is often either started with a lie, whether that's a lie to someone else, whether that's a lie to ourselves and we rationalize it, but isn't it true that it's either started with a lie or we try to shield our sin with a lie? That sin is many tools, but a lie is a handle that holds them all. We continue in verse 5 and 6. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. That is not the way to build a church, you think. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Verse 6, then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Just the true fact that my, I read this in a commentary, I hadn't really thought about this before, that Peter was used to being around and, and when he would walk by, that people would be healed. He wasn't used to the fact that if he said, hey, you lied, that people would die. And so he may have been just as surprised by Ananias' death as, as the church around that said, oh, great fear came upon the church. But it's this moment where... Uh, Ananias, just like many of us, can fall into the same trap, the same struggle, and the same luring of sin that the devil gives. We see this in James 1, 14 through 15, in which James uses hunting terms to talk about the process of sin and the ramifications of it. He says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away. This idea of, of being like a hunting term of being dragged away because they've been enticed. So each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. And then verse 15, then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. We see this in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. That God is just, that whenever we sin, he could just kill us as, as a sense of because we had sinned and we'd fallen short, he could, in his justice, decide to do that. We thank God that he sent Jesus Christ, that the wrath that was deserved by us because of our sin, it was placed upon Jesus so that that is not what we are facing every single time that we sin. But the truth of the matter is that God is just. There's no sin so small that is beyond God's justice. So we see that once birth, the sin is desire is conceived, then it comes to birth of sin, and then the sin gives birth to death. Now we look at uh, verses 7 through 10. Let's continue the story. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. That she too fell into the sin of lying. That they conspired and they thought maybe we could cover our bases and maybe we'd be able to get away with it. But when we lie, as John 8, 44 says, that when the devil lies, he's speaking his native tongue. That when we lie, we are not speaking with the same tongue that is the way, truth, and the life in Jesus. We are speaking the, the Satan, the devil, the enemy's language. And so we don't want to have lying being something that is part of our lives. Warren Wearsby, it's not on the screen, but he continues and he says, when God judged Ananias and Sapphira, he was also judging Satan. He was letting everybody know that he would not tolerate deception in his church. 
He was passionate about protecting his bride, the church. He would not allow deception to enter in. So we've seen and talked about the sin of pride. We've talked about the sin of lying. And now we land on the sin of hypocrisy. The sin of hypocrisy. And this comes from, this is born out of the idea of this pride that we want to have a good reputation, that we want to look good in front of others, that we want everything to be about us. And then when you take pride and you add lying into it and you add that part of us, which will do anything and manipulate the truth and lie about things so that we look good, pride plus lying can often give way to hypocrisy. And hypocrisy, the word hypocrite comes from, many of you may know, it comes from this idea that's this mask, a player within a play in the Greek theater who would play a part and would put on a mask and that they would play the part and then they would take off the mask and then they would go and live their regular lives. This is the idea of hypocrisy in our lives is that we would put on a mask. Maybe it's on a Sunday morning when we say everything's fine and we ignore the things that we have done over the past six days. And so we come in and we say, oh, everything's fine and everything's great and we ignore that. Maybe for some people, it's, it's the idea that you're different at work. Maybe you really do love Jesus and you really are passionate for him, but then you hide behind this mask of wanting to just have upward mobility or you just want to be promoted or you allow God to be put on the back burner when you're trying to make your career on the front burner or you're schooling and getting into the right college or whatever it may be. But this idea that hypocrisy is a sin that you and I often struggle with. And George MacDonald says, half of the misery in this world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. From the appearance of trying to look, not just be what one is not. So my wife was a, uh, was a dental assistant before she had Shailen. And while she was a dental assistant, um, I felt like a lot of pressure. You know how sometimes just to be honest, that sometimes uh, pastors' wives can feel pressure because they're the pastor's wives. I would go to the dentist. I would get a cavity. I'm like, honey, my bad dental assistant's husband because I got a cavity. You know? And so it's this idea of recognizing there's, a, there's pressure there, and, and I felt bad. I would have a cavity. Regardless, what she was telling me is the idea that we often brush our teeth, right? And so we want to brush our teeth, and we want to have a nice smile because that looks good on the outside. But many of us, we don't do that which will actually continue the health of our teeth, which is to floss, right? To be able to floss in between, because if we do that, if we floss, we're actually protecting ourselves from heart disease, we're protecting ourselves from other issues, and so we will often do something in our lives that looks good on the outside, like a smile and brush our teeth and look good, while not doing the hard work of actually cleaning ourselves from the inside out, or allowing God to work in us when we have struggles or sin. So Steph went to the dentist this past week, and they encouraged us to get uh, these water picks, which is like just this blasting water there. And so I've used it once, but it's one of those where it seems really cool. But it's this idea of doing the good work of actually cleaning in depth, not just the smile that everybody else sees. Not just the idea of wanting to put on a mask and looking good because of our smile, but doing the work to actually be cleaned and to have our character, our, the inside things that can actually help us become the men and women God has called us to become. Actually doing the hard work to clean that out so we can have true health. Now, I want to close with verse 11 that says, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This idea of great fear, we see this as well in verse 5 coming out of uh, what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. There was great fear. And so we ask this question of, if you're reading this like me, you might be looking at this and saying, well, how come God killed Ananias and Sapphira. I get that they did the wrong thing. I, I get that justice happens, but how come 
God killed Ananias and Sapphira for lying, but he didn't kill David for committing adultery and then murdering the husband of the woman with whom he slept. Like, what is it about why, in fact, they were killed, and we know Ananias and Sapphira only for this instance, whereas David we know as someone who is a man after God's own heart. And there could be a tension that we feel because something doesn't seem to connect. One was lying. That's, quote, unquote, a smaller sin. One was adultery and murder. Those are huge sins. How come he didn't have the same ramifications as they did? And a lot of that comes from 2 Samuel 12 with the story of Nathan, which we will hit on at another point because we've got years together. But 2 Samuel 12, when Nathan calls uh, David out and he confesses, and there's, and there's a, a moment there where it's not that we never sin, but when we sin, do we confess and ask for forgiveness and ask God to work on us and in us and through us. But with that being said, I want to take a couple moments because God had to make a big first impression in this new season of the church. So when it comes to first impressions, um, we have this idea that you, there's only one chance to make a first impression, right? So uh, a little over, a little less than a year ago, when I was in this process of of coming and, and uh, interviewing and wanting to uh, to hopefully become your pastor here, um, uh, the first impression I had with the the elders, they gave me a bunch of information about them, and I got to share and learn more about them. But then the problem was is that uh, we were trying to Skype, and I was the guy who didn't know how to Skype, and so it's super embarrassing. So I'm like trying to figure out, and it's not hard. I get it. So show me grace. But it's this idea that I. Remember, like, talking with the elders and being like, you know, I, I'm not quite sure how to figure it out. It's not quite working. And, like, as he's like, okay, well, well, we'll, we'll call you on the phone. And, like, as they're hanging up, I just hear the chairman of the board, Mike, Mike Bourne, just saying, yeah, it looks like he doesn't know how to figure out Skype. We're just going to have to call him. I was like, oh, gosh, like, it's so embarrassing that I'm like, I don't even know how to use Skype. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So I'm like, okay, so I'm already, like, did not make a great impression there. So then when I came down for an interview and I drove down from L.A., I, I showed up. And I came on a Saturday morning, and I, I'm like, okay, well, they may not have been able to see me via Skype, but I'm going to wear, like, a suit so that they, I, look, I look nice when I show up. And so I wear a suit. Um, it was blue. I had my shoes shine. I just want you to know how much I cared. Um, but I, I had this moment where I showed up, but the day before, um, Mike was riding, and he said, hey, we're going to have Jersey Mike's um, for, for lunch to the, uh, that day. What would you like to order? And I think to myself, I like Jersey Mike's. I love a meatball marinara sandwich. And I, I like ordered that, and Steph was like, okay, so what happened? I'm like, oh, you know, he, they said that they're going to order sandwiches. I got a meatball marinara. She's like, why did you get the messiest sandwich there is? <laughs> I'm wearing a suit, and I'm like, I don't know. This is why I have to ask you for things to give me wisdom. But it's this idea that I was like, I don't know what to do. So I'm sitting there in the fellowship room, and the elders are, are we're having uh, food here. And I remember eating the sandwich, and you have not seen a more meticulous usage of a napkin than you would have seen in this moment, where I had a napkin, and I would take a bite, and then I would, like, wipe all over, and I would use his hands. I used that napkin, like, upside down, forward, backwards, inside out. Like, I was, I'm, like, trying to not like, oh, is there any chance there's more napkins? And so you get, like, another napkin, and it was... I tried so hard, and I will have you say, I left this place, and I was like, I don't know if I'm going to get this job, but if nothing else, I did not spill a stain on that suit. <laughs> and Mike, he shared with me after, he's like, you know, we were, I was a little surprised that, that uh, you decided to get a meatball sub for your interview, and I was like, yeah, so was my wife. Um, <laughs> and it was this moment, but I, but I was joking with them. I was like, well, here's what, I, here's what I wanted you to think, that I was bold enough to get a meatball sandwich, but I was meticulous enough not to spill. <laughs> And whether that comes to fruition or not, the idea was that it was a first impression, and, and that was something that I 
did not think all the way through at the time. But the reason I bring that up is that God, during different seasons of the history of his people, he takes a different, he has to make a, a big first impression when the seasons are different. Let me give you an example. The first example here is that we look in Exodus 32 that the people had just gotten out of Egypt. They had just heard the Ten Commandments. They had just talked about the Ten Commandments saying, you shall have no other gods besides me. You shall not make an idol of anything that has been created here on earth. And so no, no other gods, no idols. And what happens in Exodus 32, 12 chapters later, they're making the golden calf. And Moses is hearing it and says, it sounds like there's you know, a war going on down there. And God says, nope, they're having idolatry and committing idolatry. So Moses intercedes, he goes down, and then what happens? He asks the Levites and says, if anyone is for the Lord, come to me. The Levites came, and then all of a sudden they slayed. They killed brothers and sisters, people who they loved, but it was a moment in which God had to make this first impression that if I just gave you these laws to not have any other gods before me, what would have happened to the people if he didn't discipline them for that? They would have thought, okay, no big deal. How many of you have ever been teachers? And what do they say in the beginning of the school year? Are you more lax to start off or are you more strict? You're more strict because you need to set the tone, set the impression, and then allow that to go from there. So in Exodus 32, they're entering in to the wilderness and God had just given the Ten Commandments. And when one was broken, they died. Many people died. The next one that we see is in Leviticus 10 when the tabernacle was first put together. And two of the sons of Aaron, uh, Nadab and Abihu, they ended up providing a false fire. They didn't worship God in the way that they should have in the tabernacle, and they died. Because God had to set a tone that you will not worship me uh, uh, different than the way that I ask. Then we see in... uh, uh, Achan and Joshua 7, they, they enter into the promised land. It's a new season where they cross the promised land after 40 years in the desert. And when they do, they defeat this place and then they hold on, he holds on to some of the devoted things that were meant to be given to God. And like Ananias and Sapphira, he hides it in the recesses of his tent. He hides it away, hoping that he can lie to both the people and to God. But then out of that, they enter the promised land and says, you are not going to lie. You cannot lie to me or to others. And so Achan and his whole family are killed. And then lastly, we see this idea of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6, that when the Ark of the Covenant was going to enter into Jerusalem for the first time, that had been stolen by the Philistines, and and they were finally able to bring it back. And they were worshiping uh, God by bringing the, uh, the Ark in, but they did it according to the way that the world would worship on a cart. And so they were pushing it rather than the way God had designed, which is with poles on the side. And so when the cart started to wobble, Uzzah, who was trying to help, he puts his hand out to stop the ark from falling. But in the second that he does that, he dies. Because he had, God had to make an impression that if you disobey and you have other gods before me, there are ramifications. That if you worship me in a way that I don't call for in false fire, then there are ramifications. That if you are someone who tries to hide things from me when we enter into the promised land, there are ramifications. And if you are someone that tries to, that worships me, but again, you do it in a way that dishonors my name and is like how people worship other gods, then there are ramifications. And we sum that up or we tie that into the story of 
Ananias and Sapphira because like the other stories, this was the beginning of a new season. This was the beginning of God's church empowered by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus gets raised, and raised up and um, during that time, that this was a new season. This was God's church and God's church should have no deception in it. God's church should not be a place that is besmirched by sin. And yes, now we know that there is sin. And now we know that when sin ravages the church, it is heartbreaking because before Acts 5, there was no sin that was recorded in the church. And in the same way that Acts 5 created this divide in the church history of when there was no sin to now there is sin in the church, in the same way that in Genesis 3, there was no sin in Eden, but then once there was sin, it was never as pure as it was before. And so we look at these seasons that there are times when God has to judge more harshly because he has to make an impression, because he has to set a tone. And so we may look at it and say, how is this? Why does he do this? And one of the reasons that he needed to show was that there is no sin that is so small that it's beyond God's justice. And you and I, still, we need to learn and continue to grow from that. So we're going to close with these last few moments here of looking at the bottom part of your notes with how God changes us from the inside out, how he changes us from the inside out. The first point that we have here, we kind of alluded to earlier when we talked about pride, but one of the ways that God changes us from the inside out is that we value character over reputation. John Wooden says, be more concerned with your character than your reputation because your character is what you really are while your reputation is merely what others think you are. One is based on reality, and one might just be the mask that we put on. So be more concerned with your character behind the scenes of who you truly are. You hear, there's a story in the book, Living the Christian Life, that George Duncan had told over Mark made at a funeral of Fred Mitchell, who was the chairman of the China Inland Mission. One of the speakers at Fred Mitchell's funeral said this, You never caught Fred Mitchell off his guard because he never needed to be on it. Duncan called that statement, quote, one of the most remarkable tributes I have ever heard paid to any Christian. Could you imagine what life would be like if you were never caught off guard because you never had a need to be on it? Because your character was so much in line with who God is, that you were a man or a woman after God's own heart. Not that you didn't make mistakes, but when you did, you confessed them and you found accountability and you were able to experience new life in a powerful way. Secondly, we recognize that Jesus saves us the worst of sinners. That because of the, the Sermon on the Mount, we see, no, we didn't commit adultery or murder like uh, David did, but if you think lustfully upon about someone that isn't your spouse, then you've committed adultery. Or if you've thought angry, angrily towards someone, you've committed murder. So what Jesus is doing is showing us that even the things that we're not doing the big sins, but the smaller things that we don't think are sin have huge consequences and they are along the same lines. So you and I, because I know my own thoughts and my own temptations and my own struggles and my own issues, and because you know your own struggles and your own temptations and your own issues, then we, you can say about yourself, I can say about myself that I am the worst of sinners because I know all those temptations that might just be thoughts and that never come to fruition as action, but because I know my own thoughts, I recognize the depth and the depravity of my own sin. That you and I will be able to evaluate. You evaluate for yourself, I'll be able to evaluate that we are the worst of sinners. So when Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul is not just being self-deprecating, saying, oh, no, no, I'm really the worst. He's understanding the gravity of the depth and the depravity of his sin. And he says, I know all the thoughts, all the things that would be sin and that are sin. And because I know that about myself, I know that I am the worst of sinners. And Jesus died for me. And in light of that truth, that while we were the worst of sinners, Jesus died for us. In light of that truth, we see in 1 Timothy 1.16 the idea that we are free to dispense mercy and grace to others. So we continue that passage, just the very next verse of 1 Timothy 1, and Paul says this, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive, receive eternal life. That maybe for those of us that are trying to hide the, the, our sins in the skeletons of our closet and the depths and the recesses of our hearts, that we hold those things back. But those are the things that God wants to renew and redeem and bring out and heal us. And we confess, and then he gives us new life through that. And perhaps it's through our darkest moments that we get to be able to show the great light of our God who through his mercy, as Titus 3.5 talks about, through his mercy we are saved, not from anything that we've done, but because we recognize that we, as the worst of sinners, have been saved by Jesus Christ. We are free to share about Jesus' mercy and grace to all those around us and to say, listen, here's how broken I've been, and here's what God has done. And because of that, I know that no matter how broken you feel, that God can do a good thing in you as well. That there is no sin that is so small that is beyond God's justice. But there, people get this. There is no sin that is so big that is beyond his mercy and grace. And so this is what we have the opportunity to do, to be dispensers of mercy and grace, to be those who are called out to be witnesses. And because we've been changed by God and are being changed by God to make a change in this world. So as we close... There's a couple questions just for us to process here this morning. So what do you do? What do you, sitting in this room right now, or you listening online later, what do you do when you find yourself committing any of these, quote, smaller sins that have these big consequences? Or whether you're committing big sins as well. The first thing we do is we confess. We confess to God, as we read earlier, 1 John 1, through, or 1, 9, that says, if we confess our sins, God is righteous and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and wickedness. Then we ask for prayer. James 5.16 talks about this idea that you confess your sins to one another and you ask for prayer because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then you find accountability. You find a brother and sister in the Lord that, that you know you can share with someone who will sharpen you as iron sharpens iron. And you can say, listen, I've had a mask for too long and I've, I've allowed my reputation to supersede my character. And now these small chips are becoming this crack in my integrity. And, and I want to be someone who lives with integrity, that the word integrity comes from the word integer, which just means a whole number. So when you have integrity, it's because you're living whole. There are no chips or cracks that separate you or divide from who you are and what you say you are and what you do. And so if we are struggling, if you are in this place of sinning, then we, have, we can confess to God, we ask for prayer from one another, we find accountability, and we don't allow ourselves to stay where we've been, but we trust that God can pull us out of the miry clay and set us, our feet upon a rock. And then the next question, just looking at the points of, has God changed you from the inside out? Looking at the points that are there, has he shown you the value of character over reputation? 
Has he shown you to recognize that you are the worst of sinners? But thanks be to God that that is not the end of the story. In the same way that Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. If that was it, then we'd all be in trouble. But that's not the end of the story because it continues on in 24. It says, but the grace of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so we are able to have eternal life. Have you recognized that? And have you been sharing that and being dispensers of mercy and grace to those around you? Now, I want to close with this last illustration here. We talked in the very beginning about the idea of, of the windshield and how if it's against the law. Like if, if you have a crack in the windshield that uh, obstructs your vision, your view in the state of California, that's against the law. Cop can pull you over and you can get a, um, a fix-it ticket. And so let's, let's say that happens. Let's say that that happens to you. You have a crack in your windshield. You go, and let's say it's $100. I don't know. Let's say that you go, you get a fix-it ticket, and let's say you want to go to the court, and you want to say, listen, this wasn't fair, or, or you know, it didn't really obstruct my view, and you want to fight it a little bit. I want to use this example to teach us something that I've heard before, maybe you've heard before, uh, the idea, the difference between three terms that we've discussed today, justice, mercy, and grace. Justice is the idea of getting what you deserve. That justice says, if you broke the law, which having a cracked windshield to the point of obstructing your view is, and you drive around and you get caught, and it's $100 for the fix-it ticket, you go in and you try to say, but judge, you know, he's like, nope. Justice says you get what you deserve. This says that you broke the law, and because you broke the law, here's a $100 fine, and also go get that fixed. That's justice, getting what you deserve. The next idea here is mercy, and mercy is not getting what you deserve. So mercy is this idea, if you use this example, that there's a $100 fine. The judge says, yes, you know what? You are guilty of that. I do know that, but you know what? I'm feeling good today, and so I'm just going to waive that fine. You don't even have to worry about it. Just go and get it fixed, but I'm not going to charge you any extra money. That's, that's, that's nice. That's not getting the true extent of what we deserve. That's mercy. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And then grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is the idea of the judge saying, Listen, you had $100. Yes, that does have to be paid. And then he commands that that happens. He walks down and he gives you a $100 bill and says, hey, I'm going to pay it for you. And you want, I'm also going to pay the $150 it costs for you to repair your windshield. That that is getting what, the, what we would not have deserved because of what we had done. And so we look at justice, mercy, and grace. And so we recognize that because of the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ is where God's justice, the wrath that had to be paid because of our sin, because we had fallen short, and because there has to be, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin, as Hebrews 9.22 talks about. That this justice had to take place, but at the cross is also where God's mercy is revealed because Jesus took that punishment that was for you and me, and he became the atoning sacrifice so that you and I no longer had to face that death, but that we had a Savior who experienced the great, the great justice and, and wrath of God, but showed the great mercy and love of God. And where just, justice and mercy meet is the cross. And that's why you and I get to be someone who experiences that. But then we also get to be dispensers of grace to say, we point to the cross because that's where justice and mercy meet. So that no matter who we experience, who we run into, who we do life with, we can point them to the cross and say, and you can have that grace too. 
You can have that eternal life too. You can have more than what you deserve because I don't deserve enough. I've been the worst of sinners and yet Jesus saved me and he saved me so that through me, through his mercy, others may know and believe and have eternal life. And I don't know about you, but we were celebrating 50 years of a church who has been doing these things, of being plugging people in and being changed by God to change the world and, and to be called to be witnesses. And I don't know about you, but that is a church I am excited to continue to be a part of as we continue to reach San Diego County and point them to the cross of Christ where justice and mercy lined up, knowing that grace is now what we get to dispense and that you and I get to take hold of the main point that we have today, that there is no sin that is so small that is beyond God justice, but thanks be to God that there is no sin that is so big that is beyond his grace. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for this time together. We thank you that even in difficult passages and even in things that are tough to talk about, Lord, that you can speak to us and through us and in us. So Lord, I pray that you would stir within our hearts that if there's things that we need to confess to you, Lord, may we confess that to you. If there are things that we need to confess to one another and ask for prayer, may we ask for prayer. If there are things that we need to find accountability for, may we find that accountability. May we take those steps and acknowledgement that, no, there are no sin that's too small that is beyond your justice. And so we want to honor your justice and recognize that that is true. But thanks be to you that we also have your grace, that there is no sin so big that is beyond that grace and mercy. So, Lord, I pray that you would stir in our hearts, that you would work in us and through us. We confess the things we do wrong, and we confess that maybe we've trusted too much in our reputation and not our character. May you eliminate the chips and the cracks in our windshield so that we may be someone who has the same kind of character as our reputation proceeds, and may you be pleased and glorified as we become a, continue to be a light for you in this city and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.